Hier komen we in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. As you know, Red Flag Radio is a revolutionary socialist podcast. Uh, we've had a little bit of a break between episodes. Um, I've been sick, a whole family of sickness, which I think that's a lot of people since we are all getting closer together again. Um, but anyway, here we are. Happy to be back with William and... A special guest who is um, now on his fourth episode of Red Flag Radio, Sagar Sanyal. Welcome back, Sagar. Hey, good to be back. And here we're not talking about anything. I mean, we're talking about something that's just uh, like... One person suggested we do this podcast and said, would you be able to do it without just kind of screaming um and shouting kind of like primordial screaming and i feel a bit like that right now um just at the beginning of this discussion let alone some of the things we're going to talk about but we're talking about the situation in india and uh Sagar grew up in india as a socialist activist has been following closely uh, what's going on there and i should also say that we're recording this episode on Friday the 7th of May and we say you know sometimes we say things might have changed it's things will have changed uh, more people will have died more people have got sick um between us recording this episode and you listening to it and things might have changed politically as well so uh just to put that in there um okay so let's face the reality of the situation Sagar what are we looking at in terms of this crisis catastrophe emergency situation in India right now? Well, for a start, hospitals are out of beds. So in the main city in Delhi, a huge city, you know, with well-resourced hospitals, people are just on the floors, people are lined up outside, sitting in their cars, hoping that doctors will come and see them for even a couple of minutes. There's been oxygen shortages in big hospitals, especially in Delhi. Uh, people just run out of oxygen, and then before you can get the next oxygen tanker to come, a dozen or two dozen people die who were completely dependent on the oxygen. Crematoriums are overwhelmed. So you hear stories of people just burning bodies on the street because, I mean, crematoriums are going 24-7, and there's still bodies piling up in the summer heat, and they're going to decompose. So people are just burning bodies on the street. They've run out of wood in Delhi for funeral pyres. So people are just using kerosene to burn bodies. Um, okay, so that's kind of the picture. I mean, I was talking to my cousin in Delhi and people are just scared to go outside. People are trying to stay home as much as they can. In terms of official numbers of recorded cases, at the moment they're saying about two and a half million new infections this week and 25,000 deaths this week. But those are the official counts. And all experts say that this is a gross underestimate. So it's likely to be 10 times that number, maybe 20 times, maybe even 30 times that number. So things are very bad. And the 
current under-resourced um, healthcare facilities are not able to cope with it. Mm. And the and the reporting of the situation as well, I think, is probably um, limited, uh, not because of what journalists are, um, you know, some sort of intention, but like access to what's been going on in hospitals and also, you know, not just in the big cities, but in kind of the heart of India. We know very little about the spread of the virus there and the death rate and so on. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, this is all reporting coming from Delhi, which, which has a lot of media presence. But thinking about the countryside where reporters rarely go, um, I shudder to think what it's like in the countryside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a horrific, really just a horrific uh, situation. I'm sure listeners will have seen some of the footage of, of the kind of personal uh, impacts that... Uh, well, yeah, it's just indescribable, but like, um, you know, uh, and all of the kind of um, profiteering activities that have been going on, the hoarding of resources for the rich hospitals. And one story that I had, I wondered if you could say something about was about the police actually getting involved to redistribute oxygen from poorer hospitals into the more middle-class hospital or medical centers for the rich and so on? Is that something that you've mm. seen or heard about? Yeah, there's reports like that. I saw a video last week of somebody who'd managed to get an oxygen cylinder for their very sick elderly relative, and the police came, took the cylinder away, and the video was of the police just standing by, not being angry or anything, but they're the police. They can do what they like. And they were ordering hospital orderlies to just load up the cylinder into their van so that they could take it away to some rich, well-connected person, probably some minister or CEO. And it's such a, like, little incidents are like that are so clarifying about the role of the police. They're not angry. They're not you know, trying to hit people, it's just they're doing their job, which is to help rich people survive social crises and take stuff away from poor people to make that happen. Mm. Yeah, it's in incredible. Um, so I guess then the question, uh, one of the first questions around the situation is, how did it get, how did it uh, end up like this? Because, you know, uh, last year, there was a moment, I think, where President Modi said, basically, India is now free of COVID. We've defeated COVID. It's all over. Um, congrats, aren't we? Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, can you talk us through a bit kind of where things have um, – what has brought us to this moment in time? Yeah, there's two main – moments when things could have gone better but didn't. So one is the first lockdown and the first wave, and the second one is the second wave. So the first wave, um, it really hit India in about March 2020, and a big national lockdown was imposed, but it was done just terribly. I mean, the point of a lockdown is to stop the spread of a virus, but what this lockdown did instead was it created a huge flow of migrants from cities to countryside. 
and the cities were the hotspots of infection at the time. So the lockdown itself was a kind of super spreader event. It spread the virus from the cities all the way into villages and small towns in the countryside, which are much worse resourced with very, you know, much worse medical reporting of cases and things like that. Now, the reason all these people had to migrate is, again, a completely predictable thing. So Indian cities have a big, uh, poor working class who rely on daily wages or, you know, if they don't get their wage for the day or for the week, they run out of savings in two or three days, like they're very poor people. And this lockdown was imposed without adequate income replacement, without any um, rent control, uh, without any food delivery services. So what are these people going to do if they can't pay the rent, they can't buy food, and they can't go outside to work? Well, a bunch of them thought, let's go back to the village because at least we can live off our extended family as stretched as they are. Because if we stay in the cities, we're just going to starve. Mm -hmm. So hundreds of thousands of people had to leave the cities in the middle of a pandemic. And I mean, people might remember footage of this from last year. The transport had also been shut down overnight. So all these people couldn't even catch a bus or anything or catch a train. People had to walk hundreds of kilometers, sometimes a thousand kilometers just to get home. Um, Okay, so that was one thing. So this was, in a sense, the first major super spreader event. But then throughout the rest of 2020, you would expect the government to be spending a lot on health infrastructure, to be building oxygen plants, to be shipping in and stockpiling oxygen concentrators to figure out transport for sick people, all sorts of things. And they did very little of any of that. They did nothing, really. They kind of coped with the, the first wave as they could without building any infrastructure for the very predictable second wave. So that was, that was really, um, I mean, it's important to keep, keep in mind that this was not just a natural catastrophe. Mm. Um, because of the way the lockdown was managed, this was the ruling class is completely to blame for how bad things got after 2020, let alone um, in 2021. Um, so this was really a crime of the ruling class uh, to manage things the way they did. It's not, I mean, another thing I hear people say is, you know, India is a poor country. What, what more do you expect? Well, India is not a poor country. It's poor for working class people. But the rich people in India are extremely wealthy. There's a lot of money in India. There's huge industrial capacity. They could have done a hell of a lot more to prepare for what's going on, and they didn't. Um, and then while all this stuff was going on, the priorities of the government were, as I said, not so much the healthcare, but just the rest of their political agenda. They thought while people are panicking about this lockdown, we're going to arrest protest organizers uh, while people can't protest about it. We're going to pass all this anti-labor industrial relations laws while people can't protest. So that was really the agenda of the government throughout 2020. Mm. Um, so that's really the kind of the start of all this. Yeah, It reminds then... me of um, 
Totally. Sorry, you go, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was, I cast my mind back a few years, around 2013, 2014, there was a little bit of talk in the mainstream media about um, India kind of supposedly moving more towards a welfare state. Uh, I guess this, you know, this stuff happened, I guess it fits in with some of the discussions around, uh, you know, various countries after the the GFC, you know, that there was this supposed sort of rebirth of Keynesianism and stuff. And one of the things about uh, India in that period was that people would often say that it's, you know, was moving towards the establishment of more of a welfare state. And I think in hindsight, you have to say that was total bullshit. And not only that, but also that to the extent there was uh, any kind of publicly funded, publicly accessible welfare state uh, in India that Modi has, you know, diligently set about smashing it uh, in, the, in the last few years. And so what we're seeing is not just the, uh, you know, the horrible consequences of decisions made in the immediate context of the virus, but also, you know, the, the kind of chickens coming home to roost from a long-term strategy of privatization and neoliberalism and smashing up uh, the remnants of the welfare state that did exist. And, you know, when you describe those scenes during the first lockdown of, uh, you know, essentially migrant workers who have to leave the cities and go back to their village because there is nothing for them in the city and that this then becomes a kind of super spreader event, like that's, that is utter madness. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's you know, it's only, it's only, the, the only reason that was the outcome is precisely because the, you know, the very rich ruling class in India and the Indian government uh, had systematically smashed up the welfare state and then in the middle of the crisis refused to provide uh, uh, the sort of uh, welfare and, and funding that would be necessary to, al- to enable those workers to actually just stay put, stay where you are, we're locking down, but, you know, we'll, we'll give you, you know, some kind of welfare so you can actually survive in the city rather than going home and spreading the virus across, you know, further into different areas of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked. We talked before um, on a previous episode about the issues of communalism and um, the BJP government and the question of Modi's uh, political agenda and the and um, yeah. I guess I, I'm interested to see if you've got anything to say about um, the whole declaration that India has beaten COVID and and it was all over in. Um, after that first lockdown and in 2020, that idea that somehow Modi wanted to claim a very nationalist type victory and then to, you know, reopen the economy, carry on with the uh, local elections that were happening, the, um, you know, celebrating of the Hindu pilgrimage and festivals and all of that kind of thing. I mean, that ties together with a political agenda that is, you know, pro-capitalist, neoliberal, but also intensely nationalist. Is that a fair summation? That's exactly right, yeah. Um, I mean, because from 2019 onwards, in this second term in national office, the Modi government had faced a huge amount of protest, first about their anti-Muslim laws, later on about their farm laws, Because of all that, the BJP's first priority when the first wave died down was not, let's prepare for the second wave, but how can we get some good PR? How can we get people excited about the BJP again so they don't associate us with, you know, people protesting against us all the time? And that's why they ramped up this 
just crazy election campaigns. So there had been state elections in several states recently over the past month or so. And the, the BJP pressured the election commission to have a very long drawn out election campaign face to face in person in West Bengal in particular, one of the states in India. And the reason the BJP did this was first, they wanted to prove to the country that they're still a party that's on the up and up, like they're still conquering new territory. So West Bengal is a place the BJP had never had a serious foothold in. And in order to get a serious foothold there, they needed to do face-to-face campaigning. Because if, if, the, if it was a short campaign season, just with ads and things, TV ads, well, the incumbent party in West Bengal would definitely win because they are very entrenched. So the BJP decided to tour their star speakers, people like Modi and his second in command, Amit Shah. Like just between those two, those two individuals did 100 rallies in West Bengal. Mm. Uh, Each of them, you know, thousands of people. So they went around doing this for several weeks while everybody was saying, this is insane. Like these are just going to revive the pandemic and create a second wave. And it did. Okay, so that's one thing. And then the festival, the pilgrimage you talked about. I mean, festivals and pilgrimages in India are a big affair anyway. They're always crowded. But this was the Kumbh Mela, which is a once in 12 or 13 years event. And people from all over the country flock to some very specific locations on the banks of the Ganges River in huge crowds, like millions of people. And this drags on for several events over a month. And this was really the, the most immediate super spreader event, this and the election rallies that sparked off this second wave. And people might be thinking, well, why, why would people attend those things? But really, like the Modi government, Modi actively told people to go and do that, right? That's exactly right. I mean, because they have this Hindu fundamentalist base, which is, just to clarify, it's not ordinary Hinduism. It's just a militaristic, very cruel kind of version of Hinduism that they've politicized. And they needed to get their right-wing religious base excited about the party again. And their way of doing it was to say, you know, we are better than the coronavirus, the coronavirus is weak, BJP is strong, Hindus can persevere, we will have this huge pilgrimage. Mm. And you're right, they were promoting it. They were saying, um, you know, our people should go along to this thing. Um, It was kind of a very naked, not quite vote grabbing, because it wasn't just about votes, it was just about energizing this right-wing base. Mm. Our comrades so now, so now they ca- they can't deny this huge crisis. Um, the the fact that you said at the beginning, you know, there's literally no room in any hospital anywhere, um, and people are dying, and on people are being the bodies are being burnt in the street. All the wood has run out. You know, how is the BJP able to, or not able, but how are they attempting to? deal with this crisis like what's their response been i know one of the elements has been to try to downplay it but that's pretty (laughs) um 
yeah, pretty ridiculous given that people are experiencing this right now. So they can't just say, oh, this is an exaggeration or people are spreading rumours about um, the level of deaths and all of that kind of thing. So how how do you think they are dealing with it? How do you think they might try to um, deal with it? Yeah, um, so they did deny it until the last week of April when the final event of the big pilgrimage happened. And the day that final event happened, they said, okay, we're in an emergency. We need to not meet in big crowds anymore. So they denied it as much as late as they could. Um, like the stuff about trying to downplay what's happening, that's still going on. So one of the BJP-ruled states, Uttar Pradesh, uh, the leader there has been has made new laws that say you will be penalized. The police will hunt you down and you will have big fines imposed on you if you spread false rumors about oxygen shortages. Now, obviously, these are not false rumors. These are hospitals saying, don't come to us, find a different hospital. We've got no oxygen. And those people, instead of getting help, they're getting the police coming to them and saying, how dare you spread this false rumor? Okay, so that's still going on in, at least in some states. Another thing they were doing is, in Delhi, I heard that some testing centers have just been closed down because they don't want more people to be recorded as new infections. So again, to downplay the numbers, mm. police have just been calling up a bunch of testing centers and saying, don't you dare open. Mm. Um, probably the worst thing, though, is... Some of the states that are neighboring Delhi, where the shortages have been particularly acute, the oxygen shortages, the BJP-ruled states blocked supplies of oxygen tankers from their state going to the hospitals in Delhi, basically treating this as an issue of political football. Like the BJP, uh, sorry, the Delhi government is not BJP. So as far as the BJP was concerned, well, this is some other party's problem we're going to hoard our own oxygen in the neighboring state while you run out of oxygen mm. in Delhi. Um, one more thing worth mentioning, um, which I've just come across in the last week or so, in Uttar Pradesh and in parts of Delhi, community organizers who are trying to pick up some of the slack for the government agencies being overrun, well, these community organizers have been getting phone calls or visits from the police to intimidate them. Why? Because you're making the government look bad, mm -hmm. right? Because if community organizers need to do this stuff, well, it suggests that the government isn't doing enough. So instead of encouraging these community activists, they're trying to intimidate them so that they don't help. Yeah, it's incredible. So, so yeah, huge kind of... Um, a political um, cover-up, but also, yeah, trying to gain politically out of it, which seems absolutely crazy. In the but, it's sort of like it it exposes the um, the depth of depravity of the BJP, really, uh, in ways that we kind of already knew, but um, yeah, even more emphasis. The other element, of course, in terms of how to deal with the crisis um, and the and what many people see internationally in, in terms of the ruling class at least as the way out of the crisis generally is 
to vaccinate. So let's talk about the vaccine situation in India because obviously now they've announced that they're going to vaccinate. I think they've just in the last couple of days said everyone over the age of 18 is going to be vaccinated. But the obvious problem seems to be that that's not happening or it's happening very slowly or that they don't actually have access um, to enough vaccines to vaccinate a population of over a billion people. So what's your take on the on the vaccine situation? Yeah, I mean, the first place to begin is the rich are getting vaccines. So it's not like a shortage for everybody. It's a shortage for people who are reliant on government hospitals to give them free vaccines. Now, India is a major, it has a very big pharmaceutical industry. It produces a bunch of its own vaccines. The problem at the moment isn't just that there aren't enough vaccines. It's more the delivery of the vaccines where the government has been just strangely lackadaisical in the last few months when they've begun their vaccine rollout. Medical experts in India are saying, why are things so slow? We've done vaccination programs, emergency vaccination programs in the past before, and we've done them way faster than we're doing it now. Like, what, what's the holdup? Um, so really, that's, that's where things are blocked at the moment, is that the, for some reason, the government is not vaccinating enough. Like, it's one thing to say, instead of prioritizing the, old, the elderly and the sick, we're now going to say everybody over 18 can get them. It's another thing for that to actually happen, like for there to be enough nurses, enough centers where you can get vaccines. And that's the bit that's not happening. Mm. Now, the worst thing is since May, since the start of this month, when things had already flared up so much, the vaccine manufacturers have been given much more leeway to sell a lot more of their vaccines to private hospitals in India at a much higher price. And obviously the private hospitals themselves will put, will mark up the prices even more. Now what this is going to do is take a bunch of the existing vaccine stock that's being made in India, take it away from the public hospitals and take it towards the private hospitals because the manufacturers get more money that way. And I mean, vaccines in India, when they're selling for the, the prices at which you can buy vaccines at private hospitals are several days wages for poor people, right? So what this means is even if the number of vaccines is available in India, it's going to be priced out of reach for a bunch of people because when they go to get the free vaccines at the state hospitals, they have a much smaller amount and they're kind of overstretched and you've got to wait around for a whole day maybe to get a vaccine. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the vaccine situation. Mm. Yeah, so again, I mean, in, in classical Marxist terms, like there's a, a very clear class differentiation in terms of accessing healthcare and, and the vaccine situation is just another element of that. And from the companies um, making these vaccines, obviously their motivation is not about saving lives it's about making profit um and so they're willing to you know jack up the price in the knowledge that there'll be people who then can't access um yeah the vaccine yeah so gar were you going to add something there 
Yeah, like one other thing about the vaccines is, I mean, the ones that are being sold to the government, the vaccines that are being sold to the government, there's two different buyers. One is the central government and one is all the state governments within India. And the new laws since May allow the vaccine manufacturers to sell at a higher price to the state governments. And again, what the BJP seems to be doing is it's buying the cheaper vaccines at the central level, but then leaving a bunch of the non-BJP ruled states to buy their own vaccines with their much smaller budgets at these higher prices. Mm -hmm. And again, it seems like they're playing political football, like they're going to direct some of these centrally bought vaccines, probably disproportionately to the BJP ruled states. And the, the non-BJP ruled states will have to pick up more of the tab on their own. Uh, so again, their agenda is to make it look like all the, you know, the worst of the COVID deaths are in these non-BJP ruled areas. So maybe next time you should think about voting BJP. Yeah, it's just, it's just like, ah, oh, yeah, just unbelievably appalling. Um, so in the face of all of this, then, what's the response of ordinary people? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of different responses, but what are some of the responses of ordinary people um, in the face of this? Can people see that cynical mm -hmm. um, manoeuvres by the BJP? Are people too busy just trying to survive? What do you think some of the upshot of this will be? Yeah, I mean, I guess all of those things, right? So one thing that's happening which restores your faith in humanity is that for a lot of ordinary people, their first instinct is, this is a crisis, I have to do something to help. So people are just using their own cars, you know, tuk-tuk drivers, anybody who can help is just trying to transport sick people to hospitals or to doctors. They're trying to transport oxygen cylinders from some plant to somebody's house. They're trying to make their own little networks and phone trees to connect sick people who need oxygen with some stockpile of oxygen cylinders somewhere else. Um, there, people are cooking, preparing food and delivering it to households which are where people are too sick to cook for themselves. Um, and they need to do all these things because the state is not doing them. That's the point. The state has the money and the labor power to do these things, but it's not. But ordinary people are stepping in to do it. So that's the positive side. But there's also the other side, which is a bunch of entrepreneurs. For them, a crisis is not, their first instinct with this crisis is not, I need to help. Their first instinct is, what an opportunity. People are desperate. I can make huge profits, right? So the black market in oxygen cylinders, vaccines, hospital beds, all these things has just exploded. And like, I mean, these entrepreneurs, just to be clear, these are people who know people, right? They are people who can find things that fall off the back of a truck or get left off the inventory in a storeroom. Um, they are wheelers and dealers who take stuff away basically from ordinary people and give it to people who are much richer and will pay through the roof for these things. Mm. And as you would expect, there's a bunch of rich people who are buying up these things, not because they're sick at the moment necessarily, but just in case. Well, you know, I might get sick next month, so I'm going to buy three or four oxygen cylinders and keep it in my house. Um, so that's the other side of things. But then, um, 
I mean, it's it's also not just these entrepreneurs, but the police as well. So the incident we talked about before, where the police comes in and takes oxygen cylinders, quite literally from the poor to give to the rich. So that's going on as well. Mm. And I read that you know, like the richest of the rich, um, again, like there's, uh, yeah, there are so many billionaires in India. I think that pe- maybe people don't realize that have private jets that are already just leaving the country, right, and and going around some of the border regulations by just chartering their own flights to the UK and other places um, or, yeah, barric- basically sort of barricading themselves in their own private compounds and waiting for, um, waiting for the end of it. So there's that element too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean – this is this is what rich people are like is when they heard there might be travel bans they just called up you know hello jeeves get the private jet ready we're going to leave in 5 hours and go to london and that's literally what they did like five or six private jets left india a few hours before places like the uk imposed a travel ban mm. um so yeah you know pandemics don't affect the rich and poor equally the rich can buy their way out of this kind of shit yeah So given the intensity of the health crisis, I mean, the under, under-reporting of the magnitude of it, the fact that there'll be an economic element that rolls out of this as well, the authoritarian nature of the BJP and Modi, um, the communalism, like it's a pretty toxic um, cocktail of ingredients there in terms of what might the possible scenario for the future be. Do you want to say a few things about that um, to finish up, Sagar? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's such a tense situation. So for a start, the social crisis is worsening. At the moment, you know, it's despair and just rushing around to organize things as, as community organizers. But there's a great deal of potential for anger and protest as well. And you're right to point to how the BJP is further inflaming things. So at the moment, um, out of the state election that just happened in Bengal, after that, there was some post-election violence, which, you know, that's, that's one thing that um, the BJP jumped on this and around some real incidents of violence, they concocted a huge amount of completely fake news saying that Muslims are on a rampage and are just attacking Hindu neighborhoods. Mm. So in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a health crisis, they're trying to stir up communal tensions. And this is a party which, it doesn't just spread rumors, as we know from past history of the BJP, sometimes it gets its fascist cadre to just have pogroms. So this is a dangerous situation. So it's pretty clear that the um, BJP is not going to tone down its hatred and its communalism during the pandemic. Even at the worst stage of the pandemic, it's going to try and keep that, keep inflaming things. Um, now, one thing in terms of the relation between the center, center government, federal government, and the state governments is we've already talked about a few incidents of state governments, BJP ruled once 
hoarding resources and not passing it on to other other states which are in need. And we've talked about the central government possibly playing political football with the vaccines at the central level and giving it to pro B, to BJP ruled states and non not to non BJP ruled ones. It seems like this can potentially um, exacerbate the tensions between various ruling parties in the regions at the state level and the central government, and potentially, um, I mean, India has a very regionalized electoral system, and the BJP has had a program for a long time to expand its reach into all these other territories where it's currently not very entrenched. So this may be, the pandemic may be an opportunity as politicians see it, to fight over this territory and to use resources to make one side look bad or the other. Um, it's also possible, like so far, the, the ruling classes, you know, they're a bit appalled at the incompetence of the BJP, but they're certainly not going to break from it. I mean, the ruling class backs the Modi government very strongly because it's very good for the corporations and for the rich. But it's possible that as this drags on, possibly for month after month, if the BJP still continues to do very little to fix the health situation and keeps focusing on you know, arresting protesters or communalizing things, it's possible that fractions of the ruling class may start to leave the BJP and go back to the, the other major neoliberal party, which is the Congress party. So there's all sorts of possibilities for a political shakeup alongside the, the shakeup in terms of um, the health situation. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, we haven't really talked about resistance because we're not even in anywhere near that at this point. But yeah, it'd be interesting to come back and see the situation in a couple of months because it's there's no doubt about the scale of the crisis and what we know in capitalism is that when crisis occurs, there's very often organized resistance and, and some of the, um, you know, some of the foundations of that and some of the ways that communities have organized, are just pr organizing practically at this point means that they are at, at least kind of making connections of solidarity with each other in ways that expose, yeah, like we've, this whole thing has really been about expose the barbarity of the of the ruling party of the state of um, the capitalist dynamic in India, because really, I mean, fundamentally, what we've got is a situation that is a mass uh, murder of the Indian Indian population because of the capitalist system. Mm. That would be my summary. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah. Anything else that we've missed that you wanted to pick up, Sagar? Um, I think we've covered all the main points, but I think the, the central lesson is, as you said, that this is the fault of the ruling class. This is not happening just because India is a poor country and this was going to happen. That's not true. They've had well over a year to prepare for this. This second wave should not have panned out the way it did. Really, the first wave shouldn't have panned out the way it did either because of that, the migrant labor being forced out of the cities, as I said. 
Um, but there's really no excuse for where we are with the second wave. They've had a year to plan for it, and they didn't. And everybody has been saying constantly, prepare for this, do something more, make some, uh, you know, make some oxygen plants for fuck's sake, and nothing's been happening. So it's very clear that this is, as you said, murder by the ruling classes of poor people whose lives don't matter to them. Mm. I mean, and that's the thing, isn't it? That India is this most egregious example. I mean, it's up there. There are other countries, obviously, you know, having a, you know, a, a disasters unfolding in all sorts of ways. But that central kind of dynamic of, you know, you bastards had time to prepare for this. We've known about this virus for over a year now. Uh, and yet we're still seeing that same refusal to act, you know, not just in the case of India, but in all governments. You think about the situation right now. Uh, when there's been another potential cluster unfolding in Sydney and Berejiklian's whole response to that is to say, we will not be having a lockdown, you know, when we're not going back there if, and casting herself in, you know, in sort of opposition to, uh, you know, to, to Victoria and so on, uh, that there's this, you know, this, they just cannot, you know, they refuse to, to allow the possibility that they might have to actually shut down the economies and stop the profits for the sake of saving human lives. You know, and that I think has been the central defining feature of this entire pandemic in country after country. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, um, we'll end the episode. And thanks again for being a, a, a friend of the show, Cigar. And um, hopefully we'll have you back with some more positive news in a few months. Thank you both. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.